Welcome to the Steal My Name Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Barrow. Comfort Movie Month continues with episode 16, and I know, I promised Polly Shore, but, but what do you do? Uh, he's technically in this movie, even though just his voice. Uh, Jack is swamped with marking. She's one of those lucky people that gets to work from home, so she's got exams and all that kind of shit coming in, so if not next week, maybe the week after, whatever. So this time around, I just... I had some preconceived notions about what I wanted to do, but what I really did was just went out and stood in front of my collection and just kind of let it talk to me. Just looked around at the movies, you know, look for color patterns, all the weird things I do when I'm alone staring at my collection, which I, I spend a lot of time doing. And I wanted something to jump out at me and just have kind of a visceral reaction to what movie would give me comfort. And I'd picked out quite a few, and I got to the far end of my wall, and I was looking at a, a smaller shelf, and I, of course, the fact that I had not added a Goofy movie to my initial list is a complete sin to me. I don't know how I fucked it up that badly. But 
Redeemed. So this week, we're going to be talking about Kevin Lyman's 1995 film, A Goofy Movie. So before we get anything else, synopsis. When Max makes a preposterous promise to a girl he has a crush on, his chances to fulfilling it seem hopeless when he is dragged onto a cross-country trip with his embarrassing father, Goofy. Yep, that tracks. So, before we talk about a Goofy movie, in terms of comfort, we have to talk about, or at least I have to talk about, 1995. Now, I've talked about some of this when I was doing 14 Months Apart with Jack, just how kind of big this time in my childhood was. When I was a kid, off and on through different summers, our cousins Christopher and Tash came and spent the summers with us. So starting from we were about seven and eight uh, until we were about 11 and 12, kind of culminating with the summer of 1995. And Jack and I both look back on this time as that kind of penultimate to our ultimate time, really, in our childhood. We weren't quite teenagers yet. We weren't little kids anymore. We had an incredible amount of freedom as kids. It was the last summer we spent on Denny Crescent before we moved. And we had this, this group of friends around us, Chris and Tash, Crystal, Lindsay, Sarah, Lindsay, me and Jack, who had spent all these summers together and we were a gang. We were complete and total street gang at this point, but obviously completely innocent. Uh, Paul Morgan, I can't believe I left Paul Morgan out of that. I'm sorry, Paul, if you're listening to this. So this was the ultimate summer for us. We camped out in the backyard almost every night. If we weren't in the backyard, you know, Chris and I had bunk beds in my room. Tasha was sleeping in Jack's room. We were, or we were all of us sleeping in the basement in homemade forts and stuff. We were out running around in the field behind uh, Denny Crescent. We were at the drive-in every weekend. It was just, it was the best. It didn't get any better than that being a kid. And it wasn't just the fact that we were all together it was movies. We were renting movies constantly. We were going to the movies, to the theater, especially to the drive-in, constantly. And we did that all throughout our childhood. We were at the drive-in all the time because it was cheap and it was incredible. My mom grew up at the drive-in and wanted to give that experience to us. So we can look back on this era and there's so many movies that we love from this time. I know a lot of people love from this time. But when I was doing prep for this, just the insane amount of films that came out of this, because I have to say, 1995, when we look back on, you know, the 90s in, you know, in quotes, I think that was the ultimate year for the 90s. That's when that peaked. You know what I'm saying? It's the, you know, early in terms of media, you know, early CG, Saturday morning cartoons, video games, all of that quintessential early to mid-90s era really completely came together in 1995 and blew everything else out of the water. I'm going to run down a list of films that came out that year because I'm sure you're going, well, what came out in 95? What won the Oscars? Okay, so the first half of this list is movies that were big for us as kids and me as a kid and then just a general list of other things that came out that year as well. And this is just a small sampling of what came out that year. We ready? Okay, let's get this list going. So obviously, 
A Goofy Movie, Empire Records, Apollo 13, Casper, Clueless, Braveheart, Now and Then, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers the Movie, Mortal Kombat, GoldenEye, Toy Story, Jumanji, Babe, The Basketball Diaries, Waterworld, fuck you, I like that movie, Billy Madison, Major Payne, Tommy Boy. (laughs) Just that alone would make for an incredible year at the movies. But the list doesn't stop there. Casino, Heat, Mallrats, Before Sunrise, City of Lost Children, Tales from the Crypt, Demon Knight, Lord of Illusions, In the Mouth of Madness, Desperado, Forgotten Silver, Ghost in the Shell, Godzilla vs. Destroya, Hackers, Kids, Leaving Las Vegas. Like, I can't believe someone hasn't written a book about this. These are seminal films. Some of these aren't just seminal film. Like these are the seminal films of the 1990s. When you ask somebody like, what was the nineties? Like you could just go to this year and show them these films. And it explains everything. These are also just like heat casino, desperado, forgotten silver, ghost in the fucking shell. Like these were films that launched careers that changed genres that inspired generations of filmmakers. I I can't, I could just read this list over and over again for the next hour and just talk about all these films because they're incredible. Everything from the start of franchises to kicking off new movements in CG filmmaking to the death of Godzilla. Like it was so 90s, it hurt. And I look back with such incredible affection and so many of these films are still so important to me as not just a person, but as a writer. And I know these are some of the first movies that people who are my age now and have kids are showing their kids. 1995 was incredible. Any of these movies, really. Content aside, you know, Basketball Diaries might not be that comforting, you know, or City of Lost Children. But any of those movies you could put on and count as a comfort movie. You would be right back to where you were. But I want to focus specifically on a Goofy movie because this was this was a big one because it came at a time where cinema was really starting to speak to us and our experiences and how we were feeling. And there's some movies in there that that did do that. Things like Now and Then, you know, I I think that's kind of stand by me for 90s kids And Goofy Movie was part of one of these films that we found with this kind of new burgeoning sense of independence we had, where we were choosing a lot of our own entertainment. And we latched on really hard to the Goofy Movie, not just for the content, but for the soundtrack as well. And I'll talk more about the soundtrack at the end of the show, or at the end of this segment before we get into Star Trek. But just to give some background information on how this movie came about. So I'm sure most of us remember the Goof Troop cartoon and it ran from 92 to 93 did 60 70 plus episodes and it's what kind of reinvented reintroduced goofy to a modern generation of viewers those of us that grew up watching wonderful world of disney on sundays i remember the goofy cartoons they were generally the the explanation shorts you know where goofy learns how to ski and the narrator would talk about what he was supposed to do and Goofy would expertly bungle the whole situation. So that's how we knew Goofy. His voice changed three or four times since he was first introduced in the 30s. A good character, but he had no... a fun character to drop into the shorts and stuff. 
but he had no real defined character. In the early 90s, Disney kind of came roaring back for a lot of reasons. Uh, Little Mermaid kicked off a resurgence on the big screen that then led to The Lion King and all the 90s stuff. But on TV, they came back hard. So in terms of this resurgence, Chippendale Rescue Rangers, obviously Goof Troop, DuckTales, Darkwing Duck, Tailspin, that was Saturday morning cartoons were fun and exciting again. Because by this point, real Ghostbusters is done, Transformers is done, Beast Wars isn't going to start for a year or two, at least I don't think so. And Ninja Turtles had run its course, it was into kind of the crummy seasons at this point, no one was really watching. So there was a fantastic kind of burst that happened again where you were stoked. I think they even ran it on family channels called the Quack Pack or something, which was DuckTales, Darkwing Duck, Tailspin. They were just fucking awesome cartoons. But Goof Troop, the show itself, because it focused on this father-son dynamic, and it was inherently early 90s. Skateboards, screwing around outside, walkie-talkies, watching TV, eating pizza, all that stuff. So it was obvious that that one was going to get a movie. Now, DuckTales had a movie, uh, Legend of the Lost Lamp. But the rest of them, I, well, Dark, uh, Darkwing Duck, Chip and Dale were all good. I think the idea of a Goofy, of Goof Troop having the, the legs to stand on, the dramatic legs to stand on to push it to a feature film, it, it had stood the most likelihood. That's what I was trying to say that whole time. I'm too excited. That list of movies has just got me humming. So while the movie is a continuation of the show, there were some changes that were made. Uh, primarily, the art style changed. Goofy, Pete, especially Goofy and Pete, they went back to their traditional uh, Disney design styles. So the 50s and 60s look. They didn't maintain that kind of softer look that they had on Goof Troop. There were characters missing, uh, especially with, with Pete. Uh, his wife Peg is gone. Pistol, the pets, all that is just Pete and PJ are there. But the major changes that they made in this leap from the small screen to the big screen, and it's what makes this movie still so important to so many people today, is the thematic changes. While the show is still great, it's very light and it's very upbeat, and it's a lot of fun. It's a, it's a gas. There's not really any hard-hitting, deep character stuff. There's character stuff there, but it's very light and Saturday morning cartoon. Here, the emotional beats hit a lot harder. They're still light, but this movie has such a huge heart. And it wears it so proudly on its fucking sleeve in a way that isn't cloying or tacky or anything like that. And like I said, it isn't afraid to go deep. And what it does is if the core theme of the TV show was the relationship between Goofy and his son, Max, this single father and son relationship, this movie completely doubles down on it. And that's really what's at the core of this movie. Capers and funny and hilarious stuff aside, and there's still a ton of this movie that's funny. But that's what's at the core of this film. It's a father and son who are just desperately trying to get the other one to understand them. There's so few 
positive father-son stories in the movies. Historically, that, that relationship has always been contentious between fathers and sons. And in the movies, they go with that because it, it's a, a, a bottomless well of good drama. And though when you're a son with a father, that can also make for a lot of bleak viewing because it just feels like that's just the inevitability that you are going to run into for the, in the most, for the most part is contentious father-son relationships. The only real other positive one I can think of is the movie About Time. And the father-son relationship in that movie is just incredible. I think we've, we've all been where Max is in this movie with our parents. We're 12, 13 years old, and the relationship we have with our, our mom or dad or our moms and dads together is starting to change you feel like you aren't being you aren't being heard. At least that's how I felt at that age. And our parents feel like we're not listening to them. You know, at that age, our parents, that's when we started to think our parents didn't know shit. And they were the most embarrassing thing on the planets. You know, in a year and a half, year two time frame, they went from being awesome and fun and let's go and do everything with our folks because it's great to I cannot wait to get away from my parents. Because you're at that age where you're starting to crave more control over yourself, over your decisions, but you really still don't have much of any control. You can go out and play when you're allowed, you know, you you have some control, and it's the amount of freedom that a year or two ago in your life when we were kids was enough, you know? The amount of... Now, I had, with me and my sister and when Chris and Tash were with us, we had a lot of freedom. We had kind of that early 80s, 90s kind of freedom where just go, go fuck side and play. Get the hell away from me. Our parents trusted us that we would make smart decisions, and we generally did. We still got up to some havoc, but it was, it was very light havoc. But also there was a lot of us, and we were always together. It wasn't like I was just out, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11 years old just roaming the streets by myself. There were always four or five of us together. We knew where to play. Like, well, Denny Crescent was Ontario housing, so there were places we didn't go. The end of the street was kind of rough, so we didn't go down there. But there were parks and schools, and we had... It was a mixed neighborhood, so there were people that owned their homes, and there was housing, and people within those duplexes, some of them owned those duplexes as well. So that helped as well, but it still created a very odd dichotomy on the street. But that age was is very strange, and that conflict that starts to arise between Max and Goofy, that w- it, it was one that wasn't as present on the show, because Max is very much a kid on the show. Here, he's a teenager, and you're starting to reach for those things. You're starting to reach for, you know, the door to your room becomes so much more important. That level of privacy, the knock before you come in starts to become, you know, dogma. It's a mantra that you live by. You know, you're starting to to look at girls or boys or vice versa or any combination thereof. Everything's changing so fast for you. And that's what brings Max and Goofy into conflict here. Because all of a sudden, they're both living very different lives. And they don't ever really stop and honestly talk to each other about it. Because they've never had to do that. There's always just, 
uh, Max know, Goofy knows what's going on in his son's life. Of course he does. Despite being a goof, Goofy is an excellent dad. He does everything for his kid on the show and in the movie. And despite all that, because things have changed so quickly, they just can't manage to stop and be honest with each other. They have to keep sidestepping, and Goofy becomes so panicked after the prank that Max and his friends pull at school that he's, Max is going to end up in jail and on the wrong side of the tracks and joining gangs in the electric chair, all that stuff. So Goofy forces him away on this vacation. Thinking that, oh, well, this worked for me and my dad, it will obviously work for me and my son. Well, that's just not always the case, and as we see to a hilarious degree in the film. Because the things that worked, you know, one generation back aren't necessarily going to work one generation forward, because times change. Kids change. The world your ki- that I was living in as a kid was quite different from the world my dad and my mom grew up in. There are similarities, There's more similarities between those worlds than there are now comparing, you know, the world my nephews live in to my childhood is completely different. It's absolutely night and day. But here they, they just can't seem to get on the same page. They're always butting heads. Now, even before the big reveal at the end, when it comes out that Max is you know, been lying to Goofy and getting him to go his own way to get to the Powerline concert. It is wonderful how quickly the relationship changes when it's moving from father and son to friends. Or I would say, because obviously you're not friends with your kids. You know, that's this, you see so much of this shit now where you can see so many people that are desperate for their kids' approval and attention and all this shit. We're growing up. Yes, our parents loved us dearly and did everything they could for us. But my parents weren't my friends. I'm friends with my parents now. Once I got older, I could that relationship could then evolve. But they were my parents They weren't out to be my buddy. They weren't going to let things go in the way that your friends do. Because that's what happens. If you're trying to be friends with your kids, you start to act with them the way you would with your friends. Which means you let a lot of shit go that you shouldn't with your kids. Otherwise, they they grow up to be fuck-ups. Or Pete. You know, Pete is a perfect example of what happens. Now, again, I'm an armchair critic. I don't have kids. So I'm sure anyone listening to this with kids is like... Awful lot of sass in his pants for somebody that doesn't have children. And I get that. But I can say what the hell I want. So, because everyone's got opinions on everything, even if they don't do it. So, whatever. I don't give a shit. But that's what's wonderful to watch in this film as they start to, if not necessarily become friends, they start to work mutually together to get to know each other again. And... Once Goofy gives Max control of the map and where they're going on their way to this this fishing hole in Lake Destiny, you see, you know, Max obviously at first is just trying to be selfish and, you know, wants to go to monster trucks and roller coasters and all this shit. But then it's like, no, what does my dad want to do? He starts to think about other people in the same way that 
Goofy is starting to look at Max as his own person. He's no longer and shouldn't be in a place where he's dictating all of his son's activities. He should have this autonomy to do what he wants to do. But in the same way, Max learns to return that respect. And in that way, they their relationship heals because they're getting to know who they are now, not who they were even a week before. Because at that age, you do kind of have to get to know your parents again, and they kind of have to get to know you again. Because, you know, like 13 to 19 or whatever, 13 to you know, fucking 30s, you're changing so fucking fast. Your, your movie tastes change, your music tastes change, the way you dress changes, the way you interact with your friends change, you know. And I could imagine for parents, it feels like all of a sudden you have this fucking stranger in your house. Like, what the hell happened to my kid? You know, they were, and because time moves so weirdly, you know, felt like last week they were normal. And now he's fucking mad at me for everything. And he's banging that goddamn double bass drum music again. As my dad couldn't, when I got into heavy metal, I think that was the, the ruination, especially for my dad. Mom got to tolerate it a bit. Uh, Everything except Static X and Hatebreed. She hates those bands. But liked a lot of new metal because it had a good bounce to it. But Dad could never do it. Anytime, because you just want to, especially if you're a metalhead, you got to listen to that music loud. And he'd hear that double bass drum, which at that time, that music was so important to me in a way that I couldn't explain to them. And same way that Powerline and what all that music represents for Max is so much bigger than what he can explain to Goofy. And to have, you know, my dad bang out the door, turn that goddamn music down, which now is an adult. I completely empathize with. I do. It's it's awful to have to deal with that. There's nothing worse than hearing, you know, having lived in apartments for years, hearing muffled music from another floor. It's the fucking worst, you know? It's, it's like someone biting a popsicle. It's just grating. But... Here, taking that, I'm not saying it didn't happen with, with me and my family, but back to, back to a Goofy movie. When they take this time to try and know each other now and get a glimpse of how their relationship is going to be going forward. Like, yes, it leads to more calamity, but how does Max end up saving Goofy during all of this? You know, because obviously you have to go over a waterfall. It's an animated film. He uses the perfect cast to save his dad. And then when they end up on stage, you know, they crash the show, you know, for Powerline, which is so 90s. Nowadays, you get that close to a stage, they just shoot you. But, you know, crash the stage. What is, what do they do? Goofy and Max do the perfect cast and they dance with Powerline. And that scene gets me every time. It, it brings tears to my eyes every single time because it's this, perfect coming together of acceptance and understanding of who your kid is now and being willing to put yourself out there for that understanding. And I know for a lot of, a lot of us uh, and a lot of our parents and their parents and back and forth through history, trying to get to a place where you feel like your parents understand you is hard it's not easy. And it took me years and I've had just, you know, I won't be too candid because I don't hurt anybody's feelings or be rude or anything, but I've had contentious times with my parents, even into, into being an adult. And, you know, I, I know the times where it was my fault 
where I was doing things and there were times when they, you know, people weren't communicating on all sides. Does that sound political and tiptoey, smidge? Now, we've since worked a lot of that out, but there's, there's so much baggage that we bring out of our childhoods. And so much of that is stuff that could be shed just by, if we could just go back and kind of look at it. Obviously in the moment, everything feels so fucking chaotic and tense and crazy that, you know, and especially cause you're in that age and your brain has just opened up a hormone flood that you're really not in any position to try and handle. So you just go fucking mad. You know, you just get angry and you don't know why you're angry. You get defensive and distant and you don't know why. It's just, it's just craziness. <laughs> and I remember that age, you know, and I, like my nephew's 13 now, so I can see that in him. And there's, there's a lot of my behavior in my nephew, <laughs> you know, were, were more similar than I think anybody expected. And I know it drives my sister to distraction because he'll be doing something and she just looks at me. I'm like, I didn't raise him, but I guess some of this shit's genetic, which means I'm off the hook for some of it. No, but this coming back to this core father son relationship, you know, that, that to me is what makes this movie so comforting. Obviously there's, there's the, the pratfalls and the comedy and the humor and stuff and the music, which I'll talk about here in a second. Cause I promised I would, and I'm a man of my word. But that's what makes me feel good because it wasn't always that easy for me and my dad to talk about stuff and to get on the same page. We do it a lot better now, but to see that, you know, like, yes, they're animated dogs. I get that. And it's a, it's a written film. They can do whatever they want. But that comforts me to know that it can be done, that there is a film out there that felt like it was addressing me even in animated form <laughs> and that I can still look at as, as a, a grown up in quotes and still draw that same comfort is, is wonderful. And you know, the, this wackadoo vacation before we get to the music, we vacationed like that as kids, you know, we were the pack up the car and go family. That's how my dad always did it. You know, just get your shit in the car, kids. We're going somewhere. Where are we going? I don't know yet. Just get in the car. You know, and the four of us would pack into the little hatchback horizon and we drove to the East Coast. Thought we were going to Quebec and we ended up in Prince Edward Island. But stopping at every goofy roadside attraction like Goofy likes to do, stopping and reading all the plaques and everything that they have everywhere along the roads. And to this day, that is my favorite way vacation. Just get in the car and just go around looking for weird shit because the, the, our country is littered with weird shit, you know, from that emaciated moose in New Brunswick to giant fiddleheads on the East coast to all kinds of neat stuff. If you just go looking and that's something that I'll be forever grateful for my dad, uh, for instilling us and my mom for going along with it is is that sense of kind of raucous joy of being out on the road. Another thing this movie captures well in that adolescent experience of Max is this the sense of of young love. You know, cuz you're everybody remembers the first time they were really in love. 
not just, you know, you're a kid and you, you know, you're, you get a kiss. I'm in love. No, but there's also, we remember that first time we were really into somebody or had that first kiss that really meant something. And they capture that so well here, you know, cause I remember being around that age and, you know, you kiss a girl and they leave the room and you're just like, yes, just, you know, pump in the air. You're just, you're walking six feet off the ground. You're so exuberant. But at the same time, all of your logical functions in your brain completely shut down. And you just go into this kind of weird survival panic mode because you, you don't know what to do. You have this incredible desire at this at that age as you start to go through puberty and stuff to start, you know, being attracted to other people. But you have no tools in your toolbox yet except, you know, societal rules that your parents have given you or pep talks or speeches or what we've seen in the movies. And we've learned that a lot of that was fucked up wrong and backwards. So that's really all you have in your toolbox to try to navigate this madness, which is why Max ends up lying to her about where he's going because he doesn't know what to do. He can't process this. And like, it's obviously dumb and wrong and he shouldn't have done that. But that's how crazy young people get and teenagers get when you're in love. You know, when when you're so overwhelmed by another person that you just can't think. Because alternately... The whole world is yours, but you feel like you're standing on the head of a pin a mile above that earth. You you don't know what to do with yourself. So they capture that really well in this film. And that still warms my heart every time I see it. Because Max is such a goober for for this this girl in the film, Roxanne. But it's nice that she's kind of just as goofy about him. You know, she's nervous and embarrassed and awkward about the whole thing. And that's that's nice to see, too. It's not just kind of this sniveling, drooling presentation of young men that you get in so many movies, especially in this era. Of just, you know, it's good, guys, go kiss a girl. I'm an idiot. You know, Max is foolish, but he's not an idiot. He's still got a big heart. Soundtrack. Okay. Right around this time is when we kind of started to get started buying our own albums. You know, like we could, we didn't have a lot of money as kids, so we weren't, you know, out going to the record store. But we could, you know, we got tapes for Christmas or our birthdays if we asked for them and stuff. But now we were starting to buy our own music. And this era, I remember specifically, Jackie, my sister, bought A Boy Named Goo, the Goo Goo Dolls record, the last really good Goo Goo Dolls record and Goofy Movie soundtrack. And I still love that era of the Goo Goo Dolls. A Boy Named Goo is still one of my favorite albums ever made. I think, you, for me, I can't separate the music from the film because like I talked about earlier in my uh, exuberant spiel here, this sense of control that we were looking for and autonomy that we were looking for For the first time, we were picking our own music. These weren't bands or anything that our parents were listening to. You know, we had gone out and found this music on our own. So the soundtrack, especially the the two Powerline songs, they were ours. And that's very, very powerful for a kid, for a kid, to feel like you have something that is completely yours and be able to process that, you know, you grew up, like, there's still stuff that I, me and Jack are still hugely into, 
the music that we listened to with our parents in the car, like Crash Test Dummies and Indigo Girls and the Northern Pikes and all that stuff. But that was still our parents' music. It was family music, you know, singing songs in the car, listening to the radio. That was still all stuff you did with your parents. They weren't songs or anything we got on our own. And by this point, too, your friends are starting to play you songs and you're listening to their music. But to go out and make those decisions and go, I want this, this is mine, and it's completely free from any parental influence. Now, it's not like we were trying to go out and buy Slayer records or anything. Like, there's nothing bad about or vulgar or anything on these, these albums, especially even with Goo Goo Dolls. But it was ours, and that was so huge for us to have this sense of complete ownership and emotional authority over these choices. And we were also very obsessive and very dramatic and incredibly serious kids, while at the same time being very imaginative and everything. And I think I'm still more that way. I retain more of that than Jack does because she's a lot more grown up than I am, even though we're only 14 months apart. But that sense of of control and ownership is so empowering. And I think about it to that this day. Every time I hear the the Powerline songs, I think back to sitting around the tape player with Jack and Crystal and everybody, and that was ours. No one could take it away from us. And it also helps that the two Powerline songs stand out, which you heard at the start of the episode, and Eye to Eye, which is what Goofy and Max sing with Powerline at the end of the movie, which you will hear at the end of this episode, are so good. It's upsetting. Now, come to find out years later that one of the reasons that those two songs are good is they're co-written by Prince. So they had a hand in there of some, of some pretty good writers. But they're just awesome. They're so fucking good. And this is more because the cartoon, a goof, a goof Troop, wasn't musical. It wasn't a musical show in any way. But here, it's more of a Disney musical. There are musical numbers that people are singing. And what these songs do is, I've talked about this in previous episodes, and I'll keep talking about it until my fucking tongue falls out, because it's so important, is they're perfect songs for a musical because they move the narrative forward. Each song is not just, let's stop and sing a song. It's what the characters would be saying. You know, eye to eye that Goofy and Max sing the power line at the end. That song is all about people just, what could we accomplish if we just heard each other? If we just saw each other? You know, stand out at the start. That's Max's desperate need to be seen by his peers and to be an individual in this mass of people as he's finding this new identity. You know, after today, open road, nobody else but you. All these songs are dealing with exactly the emotions that they're going through at the moment, and the, but they're talking to each other through song. The only song that doesn't advance the narrative, Lester's Boss and Bark, is doesn't move the narrative like it doesn't it's not the characters talking it's the thematics of the situation talking that is the literal worst case scenario that max could find himself in it's wonderful even though i think zoos and stuff like that are gross but one i would love to go to lester's possum park just to get the possum hat and see the country bear jamboree redneck deliverance version playing those songs but even but that song still serves its function in the narrative of the movie 
And that's so hard to do and do it well, which is why so many musicals completely fail to do that. But here, it's perfect. So that soundtrack has still become so important, or stayed so important to me and to my sister. And now, my friends, I when we play YouTube Roulette in Toronto, when I would play with Hayden and Kira, inevitably, I'd have to ha- hit a Powerline song. So they'll tease me from time to time. Kira actually, just two days ago, sent me a BuzzFeed list about things I might not know about a Gooey movie. So that was just wonderful timing. And as I promised at the start of the episode, there is some Polly Shore content. Polly Shore voices the character of uh, Bobby. They're they're obviously stoned AV friend who loves his squeezy cheese. And he is so funny. If you love Polly Shore and... We do. And we did at this point, too. Encino Man, Son-in-Law, In the Army Now. Now, unfortunately, Jury Duty that came out in 95 wasn't great, but it rebounded again with Biodome the following year, which fucking love Biodome. And I know so many people hate it. And if you don't like Pauly Shore movies, I can't convince you now as an adult that they're a good idea. If you don't have an emotional attachment to them as a young person, by and large, I don't think you're going to be stoked on them now. Uh, <laughs> so if you don't like Polly Shore, you're probably not going to like his character in this, and you're just going to kind of tune it out, because it's not a huge character. He just has a few lines that are very Polly Shore at the start of the movie, and then his character kind of disappears until a little bit at the end. But it was just one more reason why this movie was so ours. Between it speaking to the experience of where we were, showing up at this perfect convergence of so many things in our lives, to the soundtrack, to Polly Shore being in it, it was just perfect timing. It was a perfect storm of a film for us. And it makes me so happy to hear, as time has gone on, to see it come back in a way, because so many of these films, you know, I have friends that like to make fun of me for this, you know, like, ooh, Bob burned his mouth because he ate soup before it was cool. But in a lot of ways before, you know, this nostalgia boom and everything that has followed since then, I hung on to this stuff. You know, I didn't let it go. And I know I'm not the only one. There were people everywhere that were doing this. You know, so it's nice to see, though, that more and more people are coming back to a goofy movie and getting to talk about their their love of the film and how important it was to them. And it's on Disney Plus now, so everybody can watch it. I think Goof Troop is on there as well. So now my DVDs of Goof Trooper is collecting dust. But it's a movie that it never gets old. It it never loses its charm. It's aging so wonderfully. And it is part giant-hearted father-son movie, part coming-of-age film, part love story, part 90s time capsule, part awesome musical. And for me, you really can't ask for much more than that in a film. Like, that's a film that's doing a huge amount of the legwork for you. Like, you really don't have to try if the movie's going out of its way to do that much work. So again, I'm vamping because I'm pulling up the synopsis for this week's episode of Deep Space Nine, because it's that time again! Yay! All you people that don't like Star Trek are probably skipping over this, but I don't care, because it makes me happy. So, episode 16, The Forsaken, aired May 23rd, 1993. Loxana Troy 
comes for a political visit and instead hounds Odo for romantic attention. Meanwhile, an alien probe wreaks havoc with the station's computers, leaving Odo and Loxana, Loxana, I think it's Loxana, trapped together. <laughs> so, this is this is a better episode. Uh, this is a, a good rebound episode from from the kind of the few duds that we've had here. This episode does a lot of things. Uh, we get some great character stuff that happens here with O'Brien and Odo. But it's also another attempt, attempt by the the fan or the producers and stuff to toss a bone to the fans slash connect the show back to Next Generation by having uh, Majel Barrett guest star as Loxana Troy, who we all know from Next Generation as Counselor Troy's very over the top, wonderfully kooky mother. Uh, I'm assuming most Trek people know that she was also Nurse Chapel on the original Star Trek series, married to Gene Roddenberry, and was the voice of the computer through all of the modern Star Trek series. So that's fun. And she's an absolutely wonderful foil for Odo's straight man act. And Odo is really the focus of this episode. It's kind of the attention's kind of split between her and O'Brien, or him and O'Brien, but it's Odo is the the heart of the show. And this is the first time up till now that we've really got to see Odo in a position of vulnerability. He's he's such a serious character and so much of his character is based around his extreme sense of control. Control over himself, control over his work. Um, how he sees himself uh, compared to other people, because he is such a man alone, being the only changeling, the only shapeshifter. And seeing his, what starts as this wonderful, kind of cute inability to deal with Loxana's advances, because she's an independent woman. If she wants to get some, she's going to go get some. And she gets right in Odo's face about it and doesn't pull any punches. She wants to bang Odo. And that's hilarious. And he goes to to, Cap, to Commander Sisko. He's like, tell her to leave me alone. You know, like, what, I don't know what to do. You and your solids and your mating rituals. And he, doesn't, he has no ability to handle that. So all of that's very cute. But then it takes a turn because as this as the Star Trek problems are affecting the station, he gets stuck in a turbo lift with Loxana. And he's trying to resist her her advances, but also during this time, Odo as a, a character, as a changeling, every 16 hours he has to revert back to his liquid form to regenerate. It's You could call it how he sleeps. Because he doesn't eat or anything, that's, that's how he heals himself, rebuilds himself, gets ready for the next day. So he can only hold his solid form for so long. And that time ticks by while they're stuck in the turbo lift together. And because he's so private and so controlled, he never lets anyone see him do this. He considers it both private and embarrassing. And he has no structure in place to deal with this, except in a way that he has to keep it hidden from everybody. Because to him, it's just one more thing that makes him different. He doesn't go to bed. You know, he doesn't get under the sheets and rock back and forth trying to get comfy like solids do. Nothing about his daily life in any way reverts or compares to ours, except 
what he chooses to mimic. You know, his solid form, that's a choice that he's making to look more like us. And there's this wonderful moment where he's starting to drip. He's having so much trouble keeping his form together. And he shares this beautiful moment of, you can't see me like this. No one can ever see me like this. So what does Loxana do? She hands him her hair, this wig that she's wearing. And that he turns around and they share this wonderful moment of, we all put on masks. We all put up boundaries to hide what we really are underneath. And it's so touching when he finally, he can't hold his form anymore and he releases it and she gathers him up in her lap and sits with him. Because not only is she seeing him like this, he's also extremely vulnerable at this point. He could be, he could be hurt. He can't defend himself. So she, you know, this character that she had, you know, spent all this time making these, you know, sexual advances and everything on, they end up sharing so, so much more of an intimate interaction with each other, more intimate for Odo than any kind of sexual encounter could be for him. This is Odo at his most vulnerable, his most raw, his truest self that he could ever show anybody. And it's, it's beautiful. It's an absolutely wonderful moment. Now, of course, she, they get out of the turbo lift and everything. They're safe, and Odo's back in his solid form, and she does make another little coy remark. And she'll be back a couple more times in the series to take another swing at Odo. But that's, that's wonderful. That's the, the heart of the episode here. The other half, the B story, I guess you could say, is Chief O'Brien's ongoing battle with the station itself, with the technology on the station. It's a reoccurring trope, and it pops up over and over again. So in a very Star Trek-like way, a probe comes floating out of the wormhole. No one knows what it is, but it's got a giant computer on it. So they start downloading information, and then all of a sudden, the computer that had been very combative with Chief O'Brien, not listening to him, not cooperating all of a sudden starts to be his best buddy and does everything it wants. And we come to find out that if not quite an artificial intelligence, some kind of, some kind of intelligence, I guess for lack of a better word, awareness has gotten into the computer and taken a shine to Chief O'Brien because someone's paying attention to it and it's craved this attention while it's been floating around in the void. And it starts to cause run amok on the, on the station and it's, it's a wonderful riff on the standard tech gone wrong Star Trek episode, of which there are many, and they're wonderful. Because Chief O'Brien starts treating this like kind of a lost puppy. And because it's a tech gone wrong episode, it is packed to the gills with Treknobabble. And I love it. I know so many of the actors have, on different series, have joked about these big mouthfuls of gobbledygook that they have to get out. I love it. It makes me so happy. I, I love a good tech gone wrong episode. That's in a, in a light way where it's not, you know, huge stakes, the huge stakes ones are good, but sometimes it's just fun to hear them solve a problem. And every other word out of their mouths is, you know, re, you know, recalibrate the EPS conduits through the, the Heisenberg, you know, Prince Prince. I love it. I'd love it. So, this was a great fun one. It manages to be both emotional and heavy in a way that the other series wouldn't while still doing just great 
good, no messing around Star Trek. I think this is a DS9 centric episode. Yes, Loxana had a big crush on Picard and was always giving him the business, but she could never have had an emotional interaction with Picard the way she could with Odo just based on who he is. The technical problems that they're dealing with, any of the other shows could have, but only O'Brien would have dealt with it this way. So that makes this a a very specifically a Deep Space Nine episode. Excellent, excellent episode. Tons of fun to watch. And uh, Majel Barrett is always a hoot as Loxana Troy. She had great episodes on Next Generation, and her appearances here are just as delightful. So, book. Uh, this week, I read Authority, which is the second book in Jeff Vandermeer's 2014 Southern Reach trilogy. So that is Annihilation, Authority, and Acceptance. So, well, the first book in the series, uh, it's six years, so spoilers, but you can't really spoil these books because they're too weird, is about the exploration of Area X, this weird bubble that's kind of popped up in the South Florida landscape, and the landscape inside Area X has started to undergo changes and weird mutations and stuff, and this impenetrable bubble has encased it. And they don't know where, why either of it happened. And the Southern Reach is a research facility that was set up to study Area X. Now, the first book, Annihilation, is about the Southern Reach sending an expedition into Area X itself to try and understand it, what's going on inside. Whereas Authority is about an expedition being sent into the Southern Reach itself to try and understand what's happening within this organization and how Area X has impacted it over the years. It's a more straightforward book than Annihilation. That book was very disorienting to read, uh, intentionally so. He man- as, the, as the characters in the first book start to fall under the influence of Area X and you don't know who to trust and what's real and what's fake... It creates this very unpleasant atmosphere as you're reading it, where you start to feel a little high. You start to feel very uh, discombobulated. And that, that wasn't as present this time. And that was both a relief, because that made the first book, while rewarding, it made it difficult to read. But it's not necessary for this. Because where the first one is more kind of a investigation into nature gone weird, alien invasion, whatever story, this is much more of kind of a an espionage. You know, we don't know who to trust. You know, we don't know who's manipulating who and all this kind of stuff. But what he does manage to bring over from the first book into this one, as our main character, uh, John, who calls himself Control in this book starts to dig deeper into the mysteries of the Southern Reach. There's a palatable sense of dread that permeated Area X in the first book, in Annihilation. As soon as they were beyond the barrier and into Area X, there's a genuine sense of dread that you feel reading that book. And he manages to bring transpose that from this very alien and crazy landscape into an office building. 
a world that we know. And as he starts to dig deeper and deeper, we start this dread starts to become so palpable. And we get this feeling of this overwhelming sense of wrongness, for lack of a better word, within the Southern Reach facility, within the people, within the building. There's something wrong with everybody. And you can tell. And it starts to build and build as it goes along. And as he's digging deeper into the mystery of this facility, Control realizes he has absolutely no idea who he can trust. He does, and he starts to doubt his own sanity as he's going along and finding out how he's being manipulated by this shadow organization called Central that is running and supervising this whole thing. And as he starts to learn more and more and more, things just start to get worse and worse and worse. And realizing that, yes, you're not in Area X, but some part of that has started to bleed into the facility just by proxy. And then things go kind of crazy at the end in a, in a wonderful action-packed crazy ending. Intense, wonderful at the same time, lots of good character work, but this being able to capture this sense of dread and this sense of unease and crookedness to normal settings. You know, this isn't a haunted castle. This isn't a haunted house. It's a research building, but it's in the shadow of something that's completely unknowable. And he captures all of that dread so well. Excellent read. Absolutely excellent. Recommendations. Uh, this is easy uh, because we talk about goofy movie. Goof Troop. It's on Disney Plus. Uh, if you don't have Disney Plus, buy the DVDs. DVDs are worth having. The cartoon is still wonderful and fun to watch. In terms of father son dynamics, uh, I recommend About Time. Uh, you'll cry, which sometimes is good for you. It's another kind of a comfort. Sometimes you just need to have a good cry. Books. This one was hard because the Southern Reach trilogy is in this weird class all of its own. So probably a safe recommendation. Annihilation. Just read the first book. I haven't read uh, Acceptance yet. I needed to clear, cleanse my palate a little bit after reading that. So I'll come back to that. But yes, uh, Annihilation. Read the first book in the Southern Reach trilogy. Uh, you won't be sorry. Next week. I might be doing a Polly Shore episode with my sister. I don't know. Uh, I have some ideas floating around. But as of right now, I... Uh, yes. I talked about a few episodes back that I did have a big list planned. That was all before the the shutdown and the lockdown and the the new normal that is 2020. So a lot of that was kind of tossed out. So at this point, I'm kind of just playing it a little bit by ear going out, standing in front of my, my collection, the, the whole one wall in the basement, and just kind of, I know this sounds crazy, and it is, just kind of letting the movies talk to me and see which one yells out. So we might be talking about Polly Shore next week with my sister. I might be talking about another comfort movie. I might be talking about, you know, the kind of the dark side of comfort movies where it starts to become unhealthy levels of escape and control and repetition. I don't know. It's a mystery. You'll just have to come back and find out. But a big thank you guys for sticking with me through this one. I know times are tough out there, and I hope this helped a little bit. 
until next episode, you can find me on Facebook at Steal My Name Cast, on SoundCloud at the Steal My Name Podcast, iTunes, Steal My Name Podcast, or 14 Months Apart. Yeah, uh, like, subscribe, follow, all that good stuff, everything that you usually do on the internet uh, once you've put the lotion away, etc. Uh, and remember, turn off your camera if you're going to be naked during one of your uh, your meetings, because <laughs> I'm sure that's happening more uh, more often than not. But yes, thank you, wash your hands, be excellent to each other, and remember, until next time, to steal someone else's name, because this one is already taken.